سلام سلام لشعب الرب في كل مكان شلوم شلوم لخول يرخى بخول
Welcome everyone to day three of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's great to see you. I'm David Parsons of the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem. And I'm Avalon Wood. And wasn't that some beautiful worship from Shiloh and Nizar, both in Hebrew and Arabic? Yes. So again, welcome everyone. And it's amazing where we're currently standing. We're, in, we're at Qumran by the Dead Sea. And David, why don't you tell us something significant about this place? Well, I can tell you three things of why we're here at Qumran. First of all, at the Feast of Tabernacles every year, we like to bring our pilgrims out into the wilderness. This is a desert setting that reminds people of how the children of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a time when you remember that, you dwell in booze, uh, that this is the time when God provided for his people. Second, Qumran is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. Wow. And, and since then, these incredible archaeological finds that prove the reliability of Scripture. They found uh, every book of the Old Testament except the scroll of Esther here. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this a little later with a leading Israeli archaeologist. And number three, our feast theme this year is the Days of Elijah. We're going to ex be exploring this in our daily messages here and also in all the seminar tracks. There's a specific feature track on the days of Elijah. And when we're here at Qumran, we're not far from where John the Baptist, here at the top end of the Dead Sea, over in Bethany beyond the Jordan, he was baptizing here in the Loder Jordan River. And the Bible talks about uh, John the Baptist coming in the power and the spirit of Elijah. I'm reading Avalon from Luke chapter one. This is the passage where the angel meets John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, in the holy place and uh, tells him why this son is going to be special. He says, uh, you will have joy and gladness over him. Many will rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And here in Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17, it says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he also will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We're going to talk about how today we need to be operating in the power and the spirit of Elijah, how we need to be turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers, and how we need to be preparing ourselves and preparing a people to receive the Lord when he comes. So that's a, lots of reasons to be here. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing, David. And what's coming up next? Well, next we have a message, a warm holiday greeting mm -hmm. from the foreign minister of Israel, Mr. Yair Lapid, and then some more worship music from Shiloh and Nizar and his team. You shall dwell in Sukkot seven days in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I, the Lord your God, says the book of Leviticus. Sukkot connects us to our past, to our people, to our story. It reminds us that we are all part of something bigger. And it is time to give thanks for friendship, for the million of Christian supporters of Israel who stand with us in good times and bad, to you 
who fight anti-Semitism wherever and whenever it raises its ugly head, who stand proudly shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish people. My friends, this is also a time to celebrate the land we live on, the land we wandered through the desert to reach, the land we work, the land we build, the land we call home. Sukkot, as you know, is one of the three pilgrimage festivals when the Jewish people would make their way to the Holy Temple, to Jerusalem, to the city that stands as the beating heart of our land and of our people. This year, once again, most of our events are virtual, but that only gives extra meaning when we say, Lashana Babi Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. So friends, from here in Jerusalem, I would like to wish you all Chag Sukkot Sameach.
Hallelujah, hallelujah, Baruch Habab, Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Shiloh Ben Hod, it's great to see you and have you back at the feast. Thank you, David. And you're just uh, bringing, I can feel the joy of the Lord in your worship. Amen, amen. Thanks to your old team and, and the joy of Sukkot. Yes, yes, this is the most joyful feast, I think. Yes. Now, we're at Sukkot, and you're Israeli. What, what do Israelis do at what we call the Feast of Tabernacles, what you call Sukkot, referring to these booze you dwell Well, all, all of us build a sukkah in our garden, which is something like this. And it's a, it's a family effort. We all go together to the garden, and we start hanging the trees and the, and the sticks, and we, we make decorations. The children are cutting some uh, paper, and it's just a beautiful feast. Yes. and. 
You live up in Mali Arumim, which is just on the edge of the desert. We're out here in the desert. I mean, I mentioned it, but why do you come to the desert? Yeah, our city is in Mali Arumim. It's located very close to here, right on the edge of the desert near Jerusalem. And uh, it was established about 40 years ago. Uh, and it's just, uh, it used to be a desert. But now it's a, it's a flourishing city with 40,000 people living there and many trees and parks. It's just beautiful how the desert turned into a living place. Yes. Now, you just made a tour in the U.S. You got lots of invitations. You arranged a tour despite all the travel uh, problems. But uh, how did that go? It was life-changing. It was amazing. We, we couldn't expect more than what it was. We, we went all these things that you can see here. Yes. We went together in one van, touring from one coast to the other for five thousand kilometers. Oh, here. more, more, much oh, more. <laughs> yeah. About five hours a day in the car, right. and uh, every night, almost every night, we have been ministering. And it was amazing for me to see the hunger of, of the American people to to hear from Israel, to see from Israel. And we, every place we came, God moved in a special way. We, were, went, we went to churches that are more Baptist, more charismatic, yes. Korean, American, Japanese, uh, United Methodist, and it was just beautiful to see all this variety, and everywhere we went, God moved in a powerful way. Now, I'm sure you were well-received. We know about you here in Israel. It's exciting. People can go on YouTube, look up Shiloh Ben Hod, and you can find all kinds of excellent worship uh, music videos there with the family and friends and fellowship, everyone. And uh, those are wonderful. They'll bless you. And uh, we just thank you for being here. And also Nizar Francis from Haifa, yeah. mixing a little Arabic and, uh, and Hebrew worship. I know you all worship together throughout the land, yeah, and that's do. wonderful to have that. And uh, just thanks for being here again. Thank you. Thank you, David. Now we go to a clip on Qumran from our friends at Sarel Tours. Hidden from sight for 2,000 years, a biblical treasure was discovered high above the cliffs of the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. This region of the Judean wilderness is rich with biblical and prophetic history from King David's flight from Saul to Jesus' 40 days of temptation by Satan. However, another great biblical story unfolded here in 1947. It was one year before the birth of the state of Israel when a Bedouin shepherd boy searching for a stray goat entered one of those deep dark caves up upon the steep rocks. Hurling a stone into a deep cavity to chase out the animal, he heard the sound of a broken pottery, a sound that soon changed the world of biblical archaeology. Pulling out of the cave a broken clay jar, the boy discovered ancient leather scrolls, the very first harvest of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. An antiquities dealer in Bethlehem confirmed their authenticity, and some were sold to the Syrian Orthodox Church in Jerusalem and ended up in New York City. The Israeli antiquities authorities who got word of the treasures secured other fragments of those scrolls as well as new ones which were unearthed in nearby caves and launched a deep scientific examination. The professor of archaeology from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem who led the early research described his feelings, saying, My hands shook as I started to unwrap the first scroll. I read a few sentences. It was written in a beautiful biblical Hebrew. The language was like that of the Psalms, but the text was unknown to me. Suddenly, 
I had a feeling that I was privileged by destiny to gaze upon a Hebrew scroll that had not been read for more than 2,000 years. More than 900 fragments of scrolls were uncovered at the Qumran caves. These 2,000 years old leather manuscripts were meticulously preserved and restored, containing portions of all the books of the Old Testament short of Esther, which was added to the canon of scripture later on. Prominent is a very special scroll containing the complete text of the prophet Isaiah, a biblical treasure that is on display today at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Isaiah, whose extensive prophecies give us some of the clearest Old Testament revelations about the Messiah and about Israel's future, wrote, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. In Qumran's 12 caves, the word of God was also confirmed and brought back to life right with the nation of Israel. Written and stored for future generations by Essian priests who fled the corruption of Jerusalem, archaeologists discovered ritual baths, dining rooms, and an extensive library containing hundreds of biblical scrolls hidden and saved for future generations. We are that generation, and the treasure is ours to cherish. Thanks again to our friends and partners at Sawrail Tours for that uh, video on our location here at Qumran. And for more insights on this uh, incredible site, we now have Joe Uziel. He is the head of the Dead Sea Scrolls Department at the Israel Antiquities Authority. He has a whole long list of uh, sites that he's excavated here in Israel, a real expert, also many published articles. It's great to have you, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yes. Now, Qumran, I mean, tell us again, what is this place all about? Well, this place, the story behind this place begins about 75 years ago uh, when the first scrolls are discovered by accident in the first cave known as Cave One of Qumran. Uh, they actually get split up with some of the scrolls ending up in Bethlehem. Uh, on the eve of the UN declaration in 1947, the Israeli archaeologist Eliezer Sukenik actually risks his life in order to purchase those scrolls. And some seven years later, his son, Yigel Yadin, purchases the other four when he happens to be in the U.S. and the scrolls are put up for sale then. Those make up the first seven scrolls of the first cave of Qumran. But since, um, many, many more fragments uh, making up some 1,000 manuscripts have been discovered. And these include 
all of the books of the Bible, save for the book of Esther, as well as um, books relating to the life of the community that was living here at Qumran. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about them. The, the Essene movement, this was more like a fringe part of a broader Essene movement. Who were they? Well, we actually know that although in the Second Temple period, some 2,000 years ago, um, Jewish law was very, very close to the same way we practice it today. There were different sects and different interpretations to that law. And this, the people that lived here, uh, whether they were Essenes or a different sect, it's a little bit difficult to tell. Um, they refer to themselves as Bnei Aod, the sons of the light. Um, they decide that they really dislike what's going on in Jerusalem, and they separate themselves here out in the desert, um, not in the mainstream anymore, and they leave behind documents which tell us about the practices, their um, strict, strict, strict rules about purity and impurity, and what can be done and can't be done on a daily basis. They leave us behind liturgical texts uh, about prayers that they would say, for example, prayers in the first quarter of the year. Uh, there was a separate prayer for each Sabbath that was said, and of course, the biblical texts, which are very, very interesting because they teach us about the process of the canonization of the text, the final sealing of the text so that no more changes are made. But at this point, there are still some slight changes, and we can also see into their favorite scrolls. Um, for example, uh, if for the biblical text, they're mostly interested in Psalms and Isaiah. Isaiah is particularly well known because it's the only book that we have a complete copy of from beginning to end. How incredible is that? So it's a whole treasure trove of biblical texts, non-biblical sources that tell us about Jewish life, religious practice in that day. But the, to be able to visit this Isaiah scroll up in Jerusalem at the Israel Museum, I tell you, it's, and I think of all that Isaiah had to say. I mean, how this really proves that the text we have today if they compared it to, say, the oldest uh, text of the book of Isaiah then in existence, how did it match up? Well, it's very, very close to the text as we know it today. There are slight differences, but for the most part, it's quite similar. Um, and again, this is part of this canonization. And each and every fragment that we discover uh, adds a little bit more to the puzzle, and the discoveries continue. I mean, for the past five years, uh, the Israel Antiquities Authority has been working hard to stop the looting of the mm -hmm. desert and the desert caves, and in a very, very, very complex um, operation um, for the past four years, uh, the team has been surveying the entire desert, mapping the different caves, mapping the different archaeological finds, and excavating in different caves. And in fact, just a year ago, we found fragments of the book of Zechariah, written in Greek. Um, uh, which were found in excavations by the Israel Antiquities Authority. Wow, that's that's amazing, and uh, of course uh, Isaiah, Zechariah, they're very close to the 
heart, uh, hearts of Christians as well. We so appreciate what, what was found here, and it so expanded the whole field of biblical archaeology. You've made a whole uh, career in it, and I hope, uh, uh, you know, there's still an effort going on to survey this whole shoreline down to Engedi and Masada. Well, the operation continues mostly more towards the north and as well some to the south in order to try and really get to the finds before they're taken out of their context. Mm -hmm. uh, because when we find any archaeological find, but especially scrolls and scroll fragments in their original context, we can know so much more about them and the people using them and what they were eating and how they were living. And so it teaches us so much more about the finds themselves and about the scrolls themselves. And it was this dry desert environment that helped preserve them and make a leap from a, like a thousand, uh, 1000 AD uh, back uh, a thousand years back to the first century or so, second temple times, amazing. That's, that's exactly true. Uh, would they be in Jerusalem, they would not have survived. And our job at the IAA is to make sure that they survive for another 2000 years by keeping them in the proper condition, by conserving them and make sure that no more damage is done to them. Okay, thank you to Joe Uziel, head of the Dead Sea Scrolls Department at the Israel Antiquities Authority. And now we're going to another holiday greeting from Israel's Defense Minister, Benny Gantz. Dear members and friends of the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem, I would like to begin with a message of things. We face challenges on all fronts, on land, in the sea, in the air, and in the cyberspace. Our enemies declare their desire to destroy the only Jewish state and follow up with actions that aim to harm our civilians, our soldiers, and our assets. In facing these challenges, the support of the Christian Zionist community is critical. I would like to thank you for your steadfast support for the security and prosperity of the State of Israel. We share an unbreakable bond, and I will do everything within my capacity to continue this special relationship. I would also like to deliver a message for the holiday of Sukkot. In the Torah, it is written that the roots of humankind is based on 70 nations. During the time of the temple, it was tradition to dedicate Sukkot prayers to each nation. People prayed for light to the whole world. Today, I would like to do the same at a time when the world deals with a global pandemic and so many security challenges, I would like to, de to dedicate the prayers of Sukkot for light, healing, and peace. Thank you again, dear friends, and Shana Tova. Up next, we have Vesna Bula, a local Israeli artist and also the wife of our president, Jürgen Bula. Vesna, why don't you share with us the significance of this song and why you hold it so close to your heart? 
Well, the significance of the song I've learned back in my childhood when my father used to quote the scriptures from Song of Solomon's chapter 1, verse 5. And he always had tears in his eyes by saying, quoting the verse, I am black, but I am beautiful. And so he explained, why, why am I so touched? He said, this is the focus of the whole Bible. <clears throat> we were dark in our sins, but the God of the whole world sent his son for us and he rescued our, our life. And so we are beautiful now in his sight. So the bride in the lyric says, I'm, I'm dark, but I'm beautiful because this king loves me. Once I was, I was fair-skinned, but I was forced by my brothers to take care of the goats um, in the desert. So the blazing fire, the blazing sun um, made me dark. See, she's complaining about herself, but then the voice of the bridegroom, the son of the reigning king is overpowering her, saying, my black beauty, I love you so much. I am, I'm in love with you so much. Please come to me. And so when I had a concert this year in the Holocaust Survivors Home in Haifa, I used this song because um, it's, all Israel knows it. It's called Shechar Choret, My Black Beauty. But when I was standing in front of them, it, it dawned to me, this song is not about that girl so much, it's, it's about them. So I told them, this verse, I'm black but I'm beautiful, it's actually you. If you look back, you'll see only darkness. You've been burned, but and, and complain why are we the chosen people? So often we hear here in Israel, the Holocaust of survivors say, we, are, we, we don't want to be the chosen people because we have so much darkness. But the voice of the king is calling them, you are black. Yes, you are. You've been burned. But you are so beautiful. And my love goes out to you. This is a well-known song in Israel and in the whole Middle East. Wow. Thank you, Vesna, so much for sharing.
It is now my privilege to uh, invite our first speaker to the platform, uh, Reverend Malcolm Hedding, who for many years was the executive director of the Christian Embassy. He's been the, with the movement since the early 80s, a Assemblies of God preacher from South Africa, and still involved with us as a international speaker on our board of trustees. And Malcolm, we could talk a lot more about you, but I want to give you time to <laughs> preach to us, Thank please. You. Well, thank you so much, David, and uh, it's such a joy to speak to you all today and to draw your attention to one of the most remarkable preachers in all of the Bible. And he's remarkable because he's likened unto Elijah. And it's here in this place, just near to here, a little north, that he found his ministry in great power and great blessing. So I'm speaking to you about John the Baptist. And we read about him in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. And it says this, He will also go before him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the testimony concerning John the Baptist. The Bible says that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And if you look at the word of God in this passage, you will note that the S for spirit is not capital, it is a small s. It means simply that here we have a man of God that was totally committed to him. He had a tender heart. He had something special in the very innermost part of his being. And the Bible says that Elijah had a like testimony in his own heart. So John the Baptist came in the spirit, the dedication of Elijah, and of course, in the power of God. Now then, that means that John, while not being Elijah, was in fact like Elijah in his ministry. It is Jesus himself who said that Elijah is still coming, and that's interesting. But he also said, if you can believe it, John was like him and came in his spirit and his power. So what do we learn about John the Baptist today? And I would like to put toward you today these four simple points. First of all, the place. John the Baptist found himself in this wilderness of Judea. And if you look at this place, at this time, anybody who lives here and stays here will understand very quickly that this is a very hostile environment. It is not easy to stay here. It's not easy to live here. But one thing is important about this place, and it was so for John the Baptist, and it's this, that he was able to come aside from the many voices of the world and of the city 
and of the community. And it's here that he heard the voice that really counted, and that was the voice of God. So it is in this place that John the Baptist, who was like unto Elijah in his ministry, it was here that he was prepared. It was here that God corrected him. It was here that God actually sent him forth. The Bible said there came a time just prior to the arrival of Jesus when he was made manifest. What a wonderful thing. You know, John was called in his mother's womb. But there was a period after the wilderness when God called him forth. And you know, folk, I have this feeling that God is speaking to many people even here today as to a like-minded Elijah ministry. Will you have his spirit? Will you have his dedication? Can you hear the voice of God? Secondly, we have to talk about his platform. His platform was not a well-built and structured synagogue. His platform was not a great pulpit or something that men carved out of stone. No, his platform was in the wilderness. And it was here in this wilderness because of the great anointing of the Holy Spirit upon his life that God brought out thousands of people to hear him and to listen to him. He was like a magnet. He was like Noah's Ark. The animals came to him and they came in their thousands. The Bible says they came from Jerusalem. The Bible says they came from Judea. The Bible says they came from everywhere and they came to hear this man of God because of the place in which he stood, a place of great anointing and blessing, a place under the power of the Holy Spirit. What a challenge to each and every one of us today to be people of the Spirit, wherein God will bring His people to us that need change and transformation and blessing. And then we have to say a few words about His privilege. John's privilege was to prepare the way for Jesus. I can't think of a greater ministry and a greater blessing. His privilege was one of restoration. And so he prepared the way of the Lord. You know, the exciting thing about John is that he was Jesus-centric. He even said about Jesus that he must increase and uh, so that he, John, should decrease. He even said about Jesus that there's one coming who is greater than I, and it's this one that I'm preparing the way for. He had a great privilege, my friends, a wonderful privilege. And you know what? We are living in days of restoration. We're living in days again just before the coming of Jesus a second time. How exciting is that? And one of the singular validating signs of his near coming is the restoration of Israel. And I believe that God by Jesus Christ is looking for Elijah-like minded men and women, just as he found John, who will rise up 
at this time in their nations and all over the world to prepare the way for the coming of the great king. And then finally, I'd like to talk to you about John's proclamation, his message. If you look at the word of God and chiefly the book of Luke, you will find that he preached powerfully against sin. He called for repentance and he used language that very few preachers would use today. What would you think of me if I was preaching to your congregation and I stood up and said, you bunch of vipers, who told you to come and hear me today? I dare say that not many preachers would do that. But John the Baptist, he got up and he preached the truth. And you know why he did it? Not because he wanted to insult people, not because he was arrogant. He did it because he knew the human condition and that to save the human condition, he needed to wound it. He needed to heal and he called them to repentance. And my dear friends, he had a, he had a like-minded Elijah ministry and God is calling you and me forward into the truth of his word in such a way that people come forward to give testimony to their commitment by baptism. What a wonderful man of God. I'm going to ask David Parsons to come to this platform and we would like to pray for each and every one of you today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the many, many people all over the world who have listened to this message today. And I pray that from nation to nation, from continent to continent, you would touch hearts, hearts that will say, oh God, I might not be unique as John was, but I do desire to have his spirit and his commitment. I want to come forth to be a vehicle of restoration and blessing in my community, in my church, in my land, and also to the nation of Israel. I pray for these, Father, that you would touch them, that you would reach out to them by the power of your Spirit and give them the Spirit and the power of Elijah in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, hallelujah. Yes, Lord, we thank you for this challenging word that says we've got to have that fire burning in our hearts, that character that drove Elijah to challenge Israel to turn back to God. May we have that in that day. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist that it says in the Gospels that all Israel came out to hear him. And then one of the disciples came to Jesus only a short time later uh, when his ministry started and he said, Lord, all men seek thee. Whether they know it or not, all men and 
women in this world, you're seeking Jesus. And the transition between those two was spoken by John the Baptist, I must decrease that he might increase. Lord, help us to follow that character and calling that we humble ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work Amen. today, that we might merit your coming, Amen. that we might be prepared in our Amen. own hearts and preparing others to re be ready to receive the Lord or lest you're going to perish, just as John the Baptist warned. These are serious and sober days and messages that we're learning. Lord, help us in these days to be up to this challenge, to operate in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Malcolm. We now have a special music presentation from our branch in Germany. It is Gottfried Bueller and friends, our worship team there, who did a recorded a special song in an historic church that would broadcast all over the nation on Christian TV there for their annual Israel Sunday. Hope you enjoy this.
restoration of the nation of Israel is one of the greatest miracles of our time. For many centuries, Christians foresaw through biblical promises this exciting event. They spoke, wrote, and talked about this future restoration. Today, they're called Christian Zionists. This is their story. Christian Zionism is very interesting um, because it precedes the modern Jewish Zionism by hundreds of years. Um, in fact, it's Christian Zionists who influenced Theodore Herzl, the Jewish father of modern Zionism. And today, 120 years plus after that, ICEJ just continues that legacy. William Heckler is a fascinating historical figure. He was born of Christian parents who were serving in India. He grew up, he went into the ministry himself. He became the chaplain for the British diplomatic mission in Austria. And that's where he read Theodore Herzl's book, The Jewish State or Judenstadt. And he was able to meet Theodore Herzl and the two became friends and had a long-term relationship. Herzl himself credits William Heckler for pointing out the biblical prophecies about the restoration of Israel because Herzl was not a practicing Jew. He wasn't a religious Jew. He was a very assimilated. Um, and Heckler was significant in helping guide the decision for the new nation of Israel to be in its biblical homeland and not Uganda, which was being looked at. Heckler also helped introduce Herzl to some of the royal family in Germany and encouraged him to work on developing relations with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And it was the Ottoman Empire that at that time controlled this land. William Heckler's impact upon Herzl and the Zionist movement is of great impact today because Israel is in the biblical land of Israel, probably due to Heckler's influence with Herzl. And at a personal level, I find his story very encouraging because he was considered eccentric. Um, he picked times for the return of the Messiah, which we know it's off by at least 125 years because they're long past. And even with his eccentric behavior or attitudes, he was used of God in a very important way for the restoration of Israel and showing the Christian support for Israel and the Jewish people. When we consider some of the historic figures in the Christian Zionist movement, I mean, William Heckler, he was so important, Barry, and as you looked at his life and legacy, what really stands out for you? Well, looking at his life, for me, there's three things. The first is I think about how overjoyed he would be to see the reality of what he saw foretold in the scriptures as we get to live in the restored Israel today. Also, it strikes me that he was born in 1848. He lived at a time that most of us consider ancient history. And yet he was talking about the same prophecies, expecting the same fulfillment that we've been talking about as a Christian embassy now for 41 years. And yet he died in, in absolute neglect. His, his grave was abandoned, no headstone, and it wasn't until the Christian embassy, led by the ICEJ office in the UK, raised the money to clean up his grave area and establish a tombstone. So he died in obscurity, and yet 
150, almost 200 years ago, he was talking about this restoration that we get to live and experience. Yeah, I remember uh, Jerry Klinger, this American Jew who tries to honor Jewish and Christian figures, mm -hmm. helped us when we uh, redid uh, Heckler's grave in London. And uh, Malcolm, I mean, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls here at Qumran, there were some others that were discovered that have been very, very important. Absolutely. The uh, Dead Sea Scrolls found here validated the inerrancy of the Bible in a remarkable way. But not too far from here, at the fortress of Masada, at the very time when the State of Israel was proclaimed and brought into existence in modern history, they discovered the Ezekiel scroll in the abandoned and destroyed synagogue on top of Masada. And in particular, that chapter in the book of Ezekiel that spoke about the resurrection of the dry bones and their coming together and a nation that had lost its sovereignty, lost its national institutions. And Masada became a symbol of all of that. And then a nation that seemed to be dead and forgotten, but comes back from the dead. What a wonderful miracle. It happened just down here at Masada, where that Ezekiel scroll was uncovered. It's amazing that uh, Heckler, so many decades ago, he was so convinced of the scripture and that we were poised for that time to come again. He even wrote a book ahead of it, predicting 1897 with something important would happen in the restoration of Israel. Absolutely, and his whole, his whole engagement with Theodor Herzl, he became the confidant of Theodor Herzl. And it was Hechler that introduced Herzl to the kings and politicians of Europe whereby he could put forward the idea of a Judenstadt, a Jewish state. So Hechler was so important to the establishment of the state of Israel. And isn't that incredible that an evangelical Christian Zionist called a restorationist <laughs> actually went hand in hand with Theodor Herzl in the establishment of the modern day state of Israel. And this story needs to be trumpeted. Yes. Now, I, I'm always just so amazed at the discovery of the whole book of Isaiah, one of my favorite uh, uh, books in the whole Bible. And he not only talks about the restoration of Israel in the last days, but he also has this theme running through his passages about Gentiles being involved, people from the nations being involved in the restoration of Israel in that days. Heckler was one. We're talking this feast about many other these other historic figures in Christian Zionism, and we try to carry on that legacy today here at the Christian Embassy. I think uh, we were founded on the mandate from Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, to comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. I think of Isaiah 49, where God says, I'll beckon or wave or whistle to the Gentiles, and they'll bring uh, the, your sons on their arms and, and, and in their arms and on their shoulders. We think of Isaiah 66, that they'll build your walls, I'll bring you the wealth of the Gentiles, and this is what we're involved in today with the Christian Embassy, carrying on this noble legacy that really has been going on within the evangelical movement for around 400 years now, but it's just picked up steam to where now the people of Israel know about us and appreciate the work we do. And uh, Malcolm, we just ask you to pray for that work of the Gentiles that as we uh, are obedient to these commands in Scripture and this invitation to be involved, just pray for our work that it would accomplish exactly what God 
God would want it to. Father, we thank you today that we sit here in a way on sacred ground. It is here at this very place that the Isaiah scroll was discovered. A scroll that has been called the Mini Bible. A scroll that gave voice to the ministry of the International Christian Embassy. And we also understand that not too far from here, another scroll spoke of the restoration of this people out of the very shadows of death to become a strong nation, the whole nation of Israel. And we thank you that you've called us forth in a way from these places, these holy places, these remarkable places where the Elijah ministry even went forth with John the Baptist. And even, Lord, he gave voice to the coming ministry of your son, the Lord Jesus. It is here that you called us forth to be a ministry of comfort and blessing to the nation of Israel, to be a ministry of Aliyah, to bring her children home and to bless her people in a way, in many respects, that the Christian world has never done before. We humbly come before you today, Lord, and we thank you for all the wonderful things you've done for us, the blessing you've poured out upon our ministry over these many, many decades. And Lord, we come to you and we say like John the Baptist that you must increase, we must decrease, so that this work can continue to the blessing of the nations, to the blessing of Israel, and to the furthest parts of the earth. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Malcolm, and thank you, Barry. I think the testimony of all the nations, over 100 nations uh, taking part in this year's feast is really how the word, this message has gone out, that Gentiles are invited to help with the restoration of Israel. And now let's watch a little video clip about the work of the, and ministry of the International Christian Embassy here in Israel. We are looking here at the horizon at the wider Tel Aviv metropolitan area where thousands of rockets were raining down from the Gaza Strip just a few days ago. The rockets could be very clearly seen from here as they were hitting the Tel Aviv area, how they were intercepted by the Iron Dome, but also many other areas around the Gaza Strip has been hit by the Hamas terror that was launching thousands of rockets on Israeli soil. But in the midst of this crisis, the International Christian Embassy have been here on the ground. We were standing with the Jewish people on your behalf. And I want you to watch what we have been doing on your behalf here in the land of Israel during this time of the Gaza conflict. The ICEJ can say that in good times and even in the hardest times, as in this most recent conflict, we're here to let Israel know she is not alone. In the midst of some 4,000 rockets unleashed on Israel, we're privileged to be here on the ground assisting with shelters for those under attack, providing food baskets for struggling families, giving protective vests and firefighting equipment for first responders, and trauma care for children. And even now, the Jewish people continue to return back home from all across the globe and all of this is possible thanks to your support. Our global network of more than 90 offices in all continents 
proved yet again during the recent conflict that Israel is not alone. Our members organized or joined numerous pro-Israel rallies, expressing solidarity with Israel and its right to self-defense. All the way from countries like Papua New Guinea in East Asia, to Mexico and Nicaragua in the American continent, or in Europe in the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Germany, Denmark, or the Netherlands. They were also writing articles, appearing in mainstream TV and radio stations, or sending solidarity messages in countries like Canada, Estonia, Fiji, or Ghana. And last but not least, they all conducted urgent prayer meetings, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I believe you have seen how important it is to have an international Christian embassy right here in the land of Israel in times of crisis. But not only here in the land, but also around the world, our branches are working tireless to stand in this support and friendship with the Jewish people. We are your extended arms and your extended hands towards the people of God. And even in times where anti-Semitism is rising all over the world, our ministry is more important than ever. Please continue to stand with us and to pray for us because we are your embassy right here in Jerusalem. God bless you.
Wasn't that a powerful worship song conducted by Mike Mann with international artists from around the world singing the days of Elijah? Coming up next, we have a powerful prophetic message from Louis Engel talking about the restoration of Israel and the role of the church. Louis Engel is known for his ministry of the Sent, which is a pioneering movement of sending youth to the world in sharing the gospel. Hello, I'm so privileged to be on this Feast of Tabernacles uh, gathering, this online event. And uh, I want to thank ICEJ so much for praying all these years that God would put watchmen on the wall. You know, I always knew the time would come when God would awaken me to an assignment for Israel, to pray for Israel. But really, in many ways, it was hidden from me. I spent six years in Kansas City under the teaching of Mike Bickle and the end times and the, the, uh, the understanding of the Jewish peoples. And it just went over my head. I just couldn't see it. But of late, many years really building up, but of late, I've exploded into an understanding and a revelation of the love of God for the Jewish peoples. And I want to say, I believe your prayers were a part of my awakening. And I also want to encourage you, how many thousands around the world are being put on the wall, watchmen on the wall, because you prayed all these years. I am so grateful. I'm so grateful, Jurgen, that you invited me to be a part of this. I feel like I'm just coming lately. You all have, have paid the price. I feel like I'm an 11th hour worker. 
but I have had an awakening to the Jewish peoples. I actually share it in the message, the other message that I'm sharing with you. But I want to go back to 2009. And though it was hidden from me, it is not anymore. 2009, we were going on a 40-day fast in Kansas City. We're going on water out in the woods and um, praying and fasting. And, and right before I go into the fast, I have a dream. Now, please understand, brothers and sisters, I'm not a teacher. I function in a prophetic dimension. Uh, I, I, I don't even know if I am a prophet, but I, it's, it's kind of my world. And so you have to judge these things. I have a dream before I go into the fast that my belly is being operated on. And, in the, and I wake up out of the dream and I said, God, are you trying to make me a Daniel? Are you trying to operate on my appetites that I might fast and pray like Daniel did in his 80s to shift history, to move principalities and powers over nations? That was what was in my spirit. And uh, went into the fast, midway into the fast, there is this woman who's really a prophetic intercessor. She didn't know what was going on. She emails me a dream, and in the dream she said, I saw you fasting and you were sleeping, and five angels came into your bedroom, and they uh, operated on your belly. I'm shocked by what I'm reading. Because I had just dreamed that they were uh, that I was my belly was being operated on, and in the dream these angels operated on my belly, took the book, uh, uh, took the book of Daniel, lit it on fire, and sealed it into your belly. In the dream, the scene changed, and all these young people began coming to you with shirts that called that were that said the sons of thunder. I have lived under that dream for years. Daniel has been one of my favorite guys in the Old Testament, along with Elijah, the days of Elijah and John the Baptist, actually fasting in prayer, preparatory men for the movements of God. Now, fast forward to this fast that we call this global Ruth fast, daring to believe that God was going to unloose Ruth's vow into the church over the whole world, literally declaring that the church is going to rise up out of her blindness, going to rise up out of her replacement theology and begin to get an awakening like I have had, declaring your people will be my people. It will be a great rising up to challenge the spirit of anti-Semitism that's rising up in the earth today. And so... Uh, during this time, this fast, I was with Mike Bickle in Kansas City in the prayer set, and afterwards I came to him, and I said, Mike, would you teach me about Daniel 11 and 12? You see, I've been doing Daniel 10 forever, fasting in the times and the seasons, breakthroughs against principalities and powers. And I said, Mike, teach me chapter 11 and 12, I've only used chapter 10 for America and other nations. Breakthroughs, 21 days, getting breakthroughs. I never applied it to Israel. He took me into his back room with a few others, and he began to explain the revelation that exploded in Daniel's heart when the archangel comes to him and gives him the revelation of the last days, 11 and 12. And it's like the lights go on, and I... 
it's like the whole room is filled with God. I, I can only explain. It was, I could see what I couldn't see. I was having an unveiling, an awakening to Israel and the Jewish peoples at the end of the age. And suddenly Mike Bickle stands up, leans toward me. I've never seen him like this before in my whole life. And he says, Lou, it's the 21st day of your fast. And an explosion took place in that room. And at that moment, I knew it was not just about understanding 11 and 12. It was this, I am now giving you understanding that you are being brought in to final day's movement of fasting and prayer for the shifting of Israel and the unfolding of the last days. It was stunning. I believe my... Mike, I said, Mike, I sat under you for six years. I couldn't understand. He said, it is because it was hidden from you that you would gain favor in the nations to mobilize prayer, that when the revelation came, you would begin to get favor all over the nations to mobilize massive fasting and prayer for the fulfillment of the last days. Let me say one more thing. Something awakened to me during these days. Uh, a, a Jewish man, in Israel that I have met, he's a major leader in the, in, the, um, uh, in the educational system. They're literally teaching the Old Testament heroes in the public schools of Israel. This is amazing. That's their leadership equipping. They're, they're equipping in the public schools of Israel on the leadership qualities of David and Elijah, the heroes of the Bible, turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. This man, who's a major leader, calls. I, I receive a phone call from one that knows him deeply. He's not, a Jew, he's not a believer in Yeshua. And he has an encounter, and he's shaken for two days with his encounter, where a man named Yohanan the Baptist comes to him and says, you must raise up an international prayer movement for Israel. He doesn't even know what to do with it, doesn't know Yohanan the Baptist. He's shaken by this. He ends up coming to my home, drapes his talit over me, and commissions me into this, into this last days, raising up a worldwide international prayer movement for Israel. It's the spirit of Elijah. It's coming on John the Baptist, the preparer of the way, massive prayer, united prayer, watchmen on the wall. I believe we are in the days of Elijah's prayers, his 40-day fasts. I, I believe we are in the days of Daniel's intercession, moving principalities and powers, creating awakenings over the Jews. I believe that Daniel is releasing another jailbreak in the heavens where literally the Spirit of God stirs Aliyah. We're believing for six million Jews in, in, in America. There will be awakenings to go and do Aliyah, go back home. I believe there's coming a massive spiritual jailbreak that the, the Jewish peoples would see Yeshua. These are part of the awakenings that have taken place in my own life, and I'm beginning to blow that trumpet. I believe in many ways is because watchmen at the wall, I see EJ, I believe you've been praying all these years. We're in the Feast of Tabernacles. It's in the days of harvest.
What a powerful and fascinating word from our friend Lou Engel. We're so glad that he's been part of the Feast of Tabernacles this year, talking about uh, he's been on this uh, prophetic walk with God and stirring so many, especially young people, with the call and the sin, filling stadiums and get, uh, getting people to commit to spread the gospel. But now God has awakened his heart to the restoration of Israel in a fresh new way. I think it was in there, but he had so many other things going, but the Holy Spirit really uh, sovereignly impressing upon him that it's time to get involved in the restoration of Israel. Amen. And let's just pray into that, David, because yes. I was profoundly touched. And so, Father, we just pray now that your Holy Spirit move upon your church around the world. And even as Lou, Lou Engel said, it was, it was almost like being born again again, where he no longer read Israel as the church or Israel as America, but he read Israel as Israel, your chosen people and your chosen land. And we just pray now in the name of Jesus that this conviction be a conversion and a repentance and a revival in your church that Israel is your land of promise and Israel is your people of covenant. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. We're closing today, day three of the feast here at Qumran, back with our friends Shiloh Ben-Hod and Nizar Francis and the worship team. And uh, we just want to hand it back over to you as we close. We hope you've enjoyed today's program.
We hope you enjoyed today's program from the shores of the Dead Sea here in Israel. We've come to the end of our broadcast time on the television stations that are carrying the feast this year. But if you want to join us at the online feast, you can go to the address below and you can go there and enjoy all these daily programs viewable on demand. If you've missed some of the shows, there are almost a hundred uh, video seminars, teachings, briefings, lectures, interviews, incredible content for you to enjoy. And we'll see you tomorrow at the, for communion at the Garden Tomb. is calling you to do, your obedience of throwing the net on the other side, is to help the Jewish people return to their biblical homeland. We really see the time is running, and so this is the time to really wake up. This is the time for the nations to wake up and to ask, God, what are you doing now in my life? What are you doing in Israel? Because Israel is a compass. Israel is a compass of what the Lord is doing in the earth. And so the more we watch what God is doing in Israel prophetically, the more we can be aware and alert. Where do we need to be and what is the place we need to take as the followers of this Messiah from Galilee? Today I'm here at the ancient city of David, the place where Jerusalem sprang up over 4,000 years ago in the time of Abraham. And over the many centuries since, Jerusalem has grown into a large city and it's been fought over so many times that the original city from the days of King David got buried under layers of rubble and was lost to history. But it was rediscovered in modern times and has been giving up many amazing secrets that are proving the Bible to be true. And on today's program, we're gonna look at how the city of David was rediscovered and the incredible impact it has had ever since. To help us with this, we're gonna to turn to Zev Ornstein, Director of International Affairs for the City of David Foundation. Zev, it's great to have you here on Encounter Israel. This original city of David, an important piece of Jewish history, and yet it got so lost under the rubble of Jerusalem, people thought it was over on Mount Zion. How did it get rediscovered and who did it? 
So up until 150 years ago, when people think, where is the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of King David, King Solomon, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, there's one answer. The answer is not where we're standing right now. The answer, everyone believes, as you said, is Mount Zion, the old city of Jerusalem, until the year 1867. 1867, Queen Victoria of England wants to discover the treasures of the Bible, like the Ark of the Covenant. So she sends a man by the name of Captain Charles Warren to the Holy Land to find those treasures. And she sends him to Jerusalem, because if you're going to search for the treasures of the Bible, you're going to go to Jerusalem. Charles Warren comes here, and he ascends to Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, the place where the Temple of Solomon stood, the place where the book of Genesis tells us the binding of Isaac took place. Except in 1867, the Ottomans are here. And they say, Charles, we're sure you're a great guy, but you're not going to dig up the Temple Mount. Now, Charles Warren has a problem because he can't go back to the Queen empty-handed. So he says, if I can't excavate the biblical Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, I'll do the next best thing, which is to excavate near it. So he comes down the slopes of Mount Moriah, and he's walking through the Kidron Valley just down below us. And he comes across the ancient Gihon Spring, mentioned in the Bible. And he sees that the spring is flowing through an ancient man-made tunnel. He doesn't realize it, but he begins to walk through the tunnel engineered by the biblical King Hezekiah, dating back some 2,700 years. And he comes up with a theory. He says everyone believes that the original biblical city of Jerusalem is located up inside the walls of the old city. He says, I believe, based on where the water is and based on some clues from the Bible, that the original city of David is located outside the walls of the old city. Except when he announces this theory to the world, everyone thinks he's crazy. However, over the next 150 years, where we're standing right now, here in the city of David, it becomes clear that the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the place where Jerusalem began, is in fact the city of David, just outside the walls of the old city. It's been exciting to hear all this from you, Zev. Thanks for being on Encounter Israel. It's a privilege to be here. So we see that the rediscovery of the original city of David has had a huge impact. It's proven the Bible to be true. It's helped verify Israel's history as a great kingdom of the ancient world. And the city of David has become a magnet for drawing the Jewish people back home from exile. Christians are also being drawn here to reconnect with the Jewish roots of our faith. So make plans to come visit the city of David yourself and also make sure to join us next time here on Encounter Israel. Welcome to Encounter Israel and welcome to the city of David, the very heart of ancient Jerusalem. Today we're visiting an archaeological site which many believe was the actual palace of King David. And what does this place tell us about the reign of Israel's greatest king? And do these ruins prove the Bible to be true? 
Let's have a look around David's Palace with Zev Ornstein, the Director of International Affairs for the City of David Foundation. Zev, thanks for showing us around the city of David. Where are we now? So 2005, our visitor center is above our heads. All of this is underground. One morning, a woman by the name of Dr. Elat Mazar, world-renowned archaeologist, she comes into our visitor center and says, you need to move your offices. We ask her why. She says, beneath your feet, you will find the palace of King David. Now, wow. right, it's one of those moments. What do you say to that? So we said, Dr. Mazar, ba based on what? So she says, the city of David is a city on a hill. This is the top of the hill. This is where you'll find the palace. So we said, Dr. Mazar, we're, we're not going to move our visitor center just for that. What else do you have? So she shows us something discovered some 60 years ago on the slope that we're standing atop right now, which is a royal Phoenician capital. Now, this capital would have stood atop an ancient column or pillar in an important building. Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon. And she says that this Phoenician capital proves that where we're standing is in fact the location of King David's palace. So we said, Dr. Mazar, like, what does it have to do with where King David built his palace? So she says to us, if you knew this book, the Bible, like I know this book, you wouldn't ask questions like that. We said, well, clearly we don't. Please enlighten us. And she says, if you open up to the second book of Samuel, chapter 5, verse 11, King David has done the impossible. He has conquered a city that for three centuries no one was able to conquer until King David comes along. And immediately after conquering Jerusalem, it says that King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David with cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Dr. Mazar says, why do we find the royal Phoenician capital here in the city of David? Because it was the Phoenicians who built the David's palace. So Dr. Mazar comes and she begins to dig and she finds to the north, to the east, walls more than 20 feet thick with pottery and other organic material that she dates to 3,000 years ago to the time of David. She announces to the world, I have discovered King David's palace. That's amazing, letting the Bible be your guide to find this. It looks like a large palatial complex. What does this say about David himself? Some said there, there's no palace of David because there is no David. So until 1993, there was a group of scholars known as the Copenhagen School. And they would say to someone visiting Jerusalem, oh, you're going to the city of David. Well, there was no David until an excavation in Israel's north in a place called Tel Dan in the Golan Heights. A large stone inscription is discovered dating to 150 years after King David would have lived. Written by a man named King Hazael of Aram. He himself is mentioned in the second Kings. So now, what does the inscription tell us? It says that this king won a decisive military victory over a king from the house of David. And if there's a house of David, what does that mean? There's a King David. And so today, near consensus that scholars, 99% of them agree, there was in fact a historic King David. And the Bible tells us King David ruled from Jerusalem. Where was Jerusalem during the time of King David? Not the old city of Jerusalem, but where we're standing here in the city of David. That's exciting, Zev, especially for those of us who believe in the Bible. And thanks for showing us around the city of David. My pleasure. watching Encounter Israel. We hope you were blessed by the teachings and stories here in the Holy Land. 
To learn more about the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem and how you can be a blessing to the nation of Israel, visit icej.tv. We look forward to connecting with you.